Today's sermon text reading comes from John 18, 1 through 14. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me just start by asking this question. Have any of you been through a season of life uh, that was so good, been involved in something that is so great, so right, near perfect, it was like a picture of heaven on earth, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, what was so right all went terribly wrong. And I'm talking so wrong, so devastating, that it leaves you almost, if not literally, in a state of shock. I have, as I contemplated this question, I have about a dozen of these episodes that have occurred in my lifetime where everything was just riding high and then suddenly something happened that just shocked me into a different state of emotions. Um, there's three that stand out that I'm just going to share with you briefly. When I was a little boy, I had an uncle who was just an idol. I just idolized Uncle Johnny. He was everything I wanted to be. He was a businessman that traveled all over uh, the country, national sales manager. When he was in Detroit, he would come and stay with us and dressed to the nines. His shoes were like mirrors. In fact, it was a big deal when one day he let me shine his shoes. I just idolized him. We'd play basketball together. He was a drummer. He taught me to play the drums. And then one night when I was 12, got a phone call. He was in Atlanta. He was in a limo with the other guys of his company on I-75 going one way. And coming the other way was a drunk driver going like 120 or 140 miles an hour lost control of his vehicle, went down into the median, came up and landed on top of my uncle's limo. 
Everybody was killed instantly except Uncle Johnny, who died a week later from a brainstem injury, really leaving me at 12 years old in a state of confusion. Could, couldn't wrap my mind around this. Then there's my Uncle Bill. When I was in my 20s, I idolized this uncle, my dad's oldest brother. He'd come over on every Friday night with Laura and me and the kids. He'd come over, give me a piano lesson, and we'd cook gourmet meals. That was like the highlight of our week. Uncle Bill's coming over tonight. And then I get a phone call. He's 60 years, the same year he's gonna retire from GM. He wanted to come and work at one of my carpet stores in his retirement. Get a phone call, Uncle Bill has lung cancer, and he died two months later. And that one was less confusing, and it, it was just more anger that came out when that happened. And then the last one I'll share with you is my my grandson, my youngest son's son was born, little Joey, named after his father. And at three months old, we get a phone call, never forget, Laura opens the garage door and she's waving me in because she got this phone call. They found a lump in Joey's abdomen that turned out to be one of the rarest forms of liver cancer known to man. 48 cases in the world, two children lived. Through two surgeries and three rounds of chemo, Joey died at 20 months old. That's the one that would hit me with utter shock. I remember a time when in the middle of the night, I'd have to wake, I'd wake up and sit on the edge of my bed because I couldn't breathe. Not only was I losing and ultimately lost my little grandson, I was watching my son lose his son. Just once, Everything was so perfect, and then like a day later, it had all went so wrong. I know most of you have similar stories. I wish this was a dialogue instead of a monologue so we could hear some of those. I think about how many of you, just in the short time we've had this church, have, have miscarried, have lost parents. I can't believe the amount of parents and younger parents, I mean my age, so that's very young, um, that have passed away suddenly. Of course, John just lost his mother. And I know that many of you have endured much, much hardship. And for all of us, but more personally, for some of you, through this pandemic, I think the loss has been shocking. In our text today, we get a glimpse of what I believe is the granddaddy of all stories of perfection turn to devastation. And my hope with this message, the, the direction I chose to move in it this morning is to impress upon you that as those who know Christ, and if that's not you this morning and you're here, first of all, we are absolutely honored that you're here, that you would take time and come and at least explore uh, what we believe. Um, but if you know Jesus, no matter what comes to pass, however great the devastation, I just wanna reiterate that you are not without hope. I wanna just reiterate the assurance that all things will work out as Jesus, as God have promised us, despite the shockingly devastating circumstances that have and will certainly come. And obviously, given what I've just shared, with you about my own devastating events, I don't say this in a flowery, cliche-ish way. Oh, it'll all work out. You know, everything's gonna be fine. I don't say it that way. I think 
given what I've shared with you about these events, um, we need to take God's providence in a very sobering and real way and keep it real and not in any way ever fall off into cliche. And I think as Christians, we have a tendency to do that sometimes. You know, just reiterate what we heard somebody said or a Bible verse or something. Um, but we got to keep it real. Let's move into the story in the text. And let me say this, the, the, I titled the sermon, in fact, Josh and I were talking about it. This is like the hardest thing for me is coming up with a sermon title. But I, I entitled the sermon, Misguided Hope. And there's a theme here that we've seen throughout Jesus' day in Israel where their idea of the Messiah was going to somehow bring them worldly grandeur, like a political Messiah that was going to recover Israel as a military superpower like in the days of King David. I mean, they just, they, they just couldn't get their minds off of that. And so that was what I'm calling misguided hope, and I think we see it manifesting here. So think about it. As John's been preaching each week, and Steve, we're, in the, we're on Maundy Thursday. That's the Thursday um, before Easter. And all kinds of events are taking place. Uh, you know, the, the First Supper took place, the, the foot washing, the, uh, the great mandate is where we get Monday, mandatum, uh, that you love one another the way I have loved you. That was the new commandment that took place on that night. And, uh, and so we come to this night. Now keep in mind, these guys have had three and a half years of miraculous encounters with Jesus Christ. I mean, can you imagine walking with Jesus, watching him heal the sick, you know, restore sight to the blind, bring the dead back to life? And and speak in a way that was so profound that we see this over and over again that his audiences were astonished at his words. And you're with him every day for three and a half years. Well, the last thing that takes place in the current setting that we've been in at the upper room on somewhere in Jerusalem near the Temple Mount is the high priestly prayer that John talked about last week, where Jesus looks up to heaven and basically goes into this fairly long prayer, beautiful prayer, where he says, and now I'm about to return to the glory I knew with you before the world was. And from there it says that they walk down um, Temple Mount, they walk down from the city of Jerusalem toward the Kidron Valley, and there's a brook there certain times of the year that they crossed over, and on the other side of this brook is this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, it's a garden of olive trees. Laura and I have actually been there um, in the place that traditionally they believe is where Jesus and his disciples would have been. It's, it's pretty remarkable to see it. And uh, so they go down there, and, and 11 of the disciples are with Jesus. And the idea, the reason that Judas isn't with Jesus in the minds of the disciples is he's taking some of the alms and giving it to the poor and probably going and getting some food for them, and then he's going to join them. Instead, as you know, Judas had betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's where Judas was. And then they're in the garden, just another glorious night, peace of heaven on earth, and the Roman guards 
and the Jewish officers led by Judas show up to arrest Jesus. Now, Peter, as I've, as I've contemplated this, and if you think about it carefully, Peter has to be in utter shock. Well, they all do, but we, we see how Peter reacts. He, I mean, he's in a state of shock, and here's why. Peter pulls out his sword and starts swinging it at these Roman soldiers. Do you understand if you do that to a Roman soldier in first century Israel, you are killed instantly. There's no trial, there's no arrest, you are killed on the spot. Peter is in shock. He's ready to fight and die. And then we read this prophecy, this, he didn't die. They didn't kill him on the spot like they should have to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. And that's talking about more than Peter and the disciples. They're the ones that are going to bring the word and, and, and they're the ones as to why you and I are here today. It, it wasn't just them, it's us. Not one of whom you gave me will perish. And we see that in John chapter six and John chapter 10 where Jesus makes those claims. Well, Jesus, is arrested. Again, very, very confusing time, shocking time. The disciples are following behind from a distance. He's, he's scourged, he's beaten, he has a crown of thorns jammed onto his head, blood's running down, and then they crucified him, nailed his hands and his feet to a cross, put a spear in his side, and then he was put in the grave. And in the minds of these disciples who walked with him throughout these three and a half years, it's over. This glorious season, this heavenly season, it's over. Devastation, shock, disappointment, hurt, shame, anger, it's over. Peter knows it's over which is why as we read on further into the text, and I think this might be in the text Steve's gonna preach on next week, um, Peter denies knowing Jesus. You were with him, you're one of his disciples. No, no, I'm not. Three times. The third time, he was so adamant about it, he was cussing them out and saying, I don't know him. But why not? It's over. Now that he's come to maybe his senses a little bit, why should I die too? I mean, this is this thing we hoped for, it's over. And then on the day of resurrection, Jesus starts walking alongside the two disciples on their way to Emmaus. Why are they on their way to Emmaus? Because it's over. He says, tell me what's going on. He says, well, there's this Jesus. You know, we'd hoped he's the one that's gonna redeem Israel, but he's dead. And then some women went to the tomb and they said his body wasn't there. But anyway, we're getting, we gotta get on with life. It's over. Maybe they were all so taken in by the greatness of Jesus and being with him that they refused to hear what Jesus had been telling them all along concerning his necessary and imminent death and resurrection. And perhaps when we are experiencing the greatest seasons of life here and now, 
Perhaps we're refusing in the glory of the moment or the season to see the full reality of what this life is actually about and what the promises of Jesus actually are because it's so easy to become fixated on the here and now, the things of this world. And it makes sense. It's because it's what we can see. We go along with the idea of faith to a point, but we are easily overcome by sight. Even in the church with spiritual things, if we're not careful, the same thing can happen. We can be so fixated on the temporal that, that, that we miss out on the eternal. I mean, think about the prosperity gospel. They, you know, they want to they take this, this grand narrative and reduce it to the, the little miracles I can get here and now as opposed to the grand narrative that Jesus has gone and prepared a place for us that we can come and live in a place where we won't need a miracle forever. <clears throat> um, I, have a, I have a good friend that, and I mean, he's a sincere Christian. He loves Jesus more than most of us. Um, I love him. He comes to me, he says, Dan, he says, I, you know, he's into this healing ministry. And, and, he's in, you know, he, he, he apparently has had some success, which I think is great. You know, we've seen some people, prayed for some people, and they got healed, and it's a wonderful thing. And he's going on and on and on. He's in my office up in Traverse City, and he's telling me this. And, and, and in a real sense, what came to me is like, this has become his gospel. This, this temporal, earthly healing thing be, had become his gospel. I said, Bill, I love you, brother, and I do love this man dearly, but I have to be honest, I'm more excited about the gospel than physical healings on earth. And I added, mainly because you can experience healings and people can be healed, but they're still gonna die. So, so how did that go? So the only thing that really and ultimately excites and energizes me for ministry isn't the good news that you're gonna get your healing, as Benny Hinn would say. but that the gospel is real, that Jesus has remedied sin and death. And by the way, all the healings that we read about in scripture, and there are many that Jesus performed and then his disciples after him performed, were given as signs to us that Jesus was in fact God incarnate and that he had power over nature. The disciples were able to perform signs in his name. And although the signs clearly point to the fact that we will all be ultimately perfectly healed from every ailment in the new heavens and the new earth, the foremost sign that would be performed was, and John talks about this all the time, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The guarantee of our salvation, the guarantee that our sins are forgiven points us to the greatest reality, the good news that death is conquered for those who belong to him. Think about it. Paul doesn't say, if you get your temporal healing or your temporal victory, or you can get things to go the, the way you want temporally, you know, um, things are going to be good. And if you don't get them, you, you're to be pitied more than all men. He doesn't say that. He says, if Christ was not raised you are to be pitied. We are to be pitied more than all. If you would, just turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
I want to look at verse 14 and then verses 19 to 23. In verse 14, it says, and if Christ has not been raised, here's the crux of the whole thing, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Then 19 and following, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, you see it? Even Christians in Christ can live their lives in such a way where they're, what they're exhibiting is they actually only have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. If that's our understanding and our takeaway from the work that Jesus Christ has done, we of all people who claim to be Christians are to be pitied most. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits had to suffer, had to die, to be raised from the dead, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So think about this. In this life, where occasionally things are as amazing as if this were heaven on earth, by the way, I thank the Lord for those times. I don't want to minimize those times. I love those times when, when we can experience that. We must see these wonderful seasons as pictures or as a foretaste of that life to come. He gives us he gives us little pictures of what that ultimate life will actually and truly be right, be like. It's like the Lord's Supper, a foretaste to the great banquet that's going to take place when we arrive in the kingdom. So then in the midst of these sobering realities, where can we find peace and patience and perseverance and joy even when the worst thing imaginable happens? the very same place the disciples would ultimately find it, in the gospel. It's not a cliche. It's just the truth. The good news that our sins are forgiven and that even though we are going to be devastated at times because we live in a world desperately stained by sin, so much so that the apostle uh, also states in Romans chapter 8 that even, in fact, we sang the, the song today, the creation groans for redemption. The created order. That's how fallen, that's how broken, that's how stained this world is. When you see news of a tsunami or a tornado or a tidal wave or a hurricane, that is the created order groaning for redemption. But in Christ, we will ultimately be raised up and we will transcend all the devastation and we will follow him in his resurrection. And to move toward the conclusion of this, let's look at the outcome of some of the characters in this text. For instance, let's take the Roman guard and the, and the temple officers that came whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Think about it. These, these people that were Jesus' antagonists 
the, 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 the Jewish officers, and pagan Romans that have wanted, would have wanted nothing to do with any religion that has anything to do with Israel. When Jesus said those words, they drew back and they fell to the ground. I, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. They were immediately confronted with the one who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the one who created and sustains the universe and the one who came to save it from the decimation of sin. No matter where they were in their spiritual journey, confronted face to faith with God, they drew back and fell to the ground. Friends, that's who we've placed our hopes in, or it's who I hope you will place your hope in. At the name of Jesus, every knee will ultimately bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Even the demons will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Judas ended up realizing what he had done. He knew who Jesus was. He even tried to give the money back and undo it threw the 30 coins back at him. But you know what the problem with Judas was? And this was the only problem, by the way, is why I don't believe Judas will be in the kingdom. He did not believe he could be forgiven for what he did. He thought his sin was greater than God's grace. And so he hanged himself. Peter, who denied knowing Jesus, humbled upon realizing how sinful he was and how utterly desperate he was for God's mercy, repented, realizing who Jesus was, clinged to Christ and would, along with the others, including Paul, who would be added at a later time, spend every moment of the rest of their lives telling others about Jesus right up to the day each of their lives would be taken from them because of Jesus. In fact, tradition holds that Peter was hanged upside down at his own request because he said, I am not worthy to be executed in the same manner in which my Savior was executed. And so tradition has it that at his request, they hung him upside down. What changed from, from all the disciples being scattered and, and anger manifesting and drawing the sword and denial of the master himself. I don't know him. Well, when the Holy Spirit came, who Jesus said, this has to happen. This is part of the redemptive story. It's better that I go because if I go, I will send the Spirit and you need the Spirit because there's things that you can't bear right now that the Spirit's gonna reveal to you. So the Spirit came. And they learned the very same lesson that each one of us must learn on this journey. That Jesus' mission was not to create heaven on earth through restoring Israel to the world's military superpower. That's not why Jesus came. In the spirit, they learned that Jesus came to suffer and die and take away sin and to be raised on the third day to take away death and to reign supreme over heaven and earth at the right hand of God the Father until the Father sends him back to claim his own, at which time he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells 
over and against sin and where health and life reigns over against sickness and death. I learned early in life and throughout every phase of my life, and I know most of you have as well, that something was desperately wrong with this world. And through all these events, including the few that I shared with you, which caused much confusion, sadness, brokenness, anger, it taught me to be very cautious about my experience in this world. It taught me to rightly lower my expectations as to what this world can deliver on. In fact, at Joey's funeral at the graveside service, I shared just that. I said, I don't, I can never look at the world the same way because this is what this world's capable of, taking my little 20-month-old grandson. So where do we go from here? How then, in light of these things, shall I function in the world? Because I don't want just, this just to be a depressing story. Oh man, life is devastating, then we die and hopefully we go to, I mean, no. What, there's gotta be something. Well, let me, in closing, admonish and encourage you in five ways. If you're, if you're at all thinking of taking notes, this would be the time to do it. Just five things, briefly, that I wanna give you as to how I think we can really grow and be edified and strengthened and encouraged and admonished in this theme. Number one, enjoy the good gifts the Lord gives you to enjoy, especially with family, friends, and brothers and sisters, but with caution. Don't, don't turn them into idols, but enjoy them as God gives them to you. The same apostle Peter learned how to communicate this well. And the second one is, first of all, he says, know your enemy. This is the second one, know your enemy. Enjoy the good gifts God gives you, know your enemy. First Peter 5, eight through 10, if you wanna turn. First Peter 5, eight through 10, and then I'm gonna do another one back in First Peter 4. But listen to what Peter says about knowing your enemy. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. See, we can't avoid it. That's what this world dishes out. Throughout the world, every time and place. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Know your enemy. In any kind of warfare, it's crucial that you learn everything you can about your enemy. Thirdly, when difficult times come, suffer like a Christian. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, again, this is, the, this is the same man who pulled out the sword and, you know, who denied knowing Jesus. And no, he's now restored and he gets it. And here's what he says. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange is happening to you. Don't be surprised by that. Knowing the enemy, we know that's going to happen. Knowing the, the fragility of this earth and, and, and this, 
this world order. We know that that's going to happen. That, that Peter's not saying that. That's me saying that. Then verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So even in our suffering, what Peter's saying is don't be surprised by it for crying out loud. You know, we should expect it, but we can rejoice in it because we know the end of the story. Beautiful, beautiful statement. Fourthly, embrace God's good providence through tribulation because it's real. God's providence, you know, that all things work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose, is not a Christian cliche. It's real. And, and we should embrace that and be strengthened by it. Peter and the others were restored and went way beyond what they ever dreamt. Three days later, after the Emmaus disciples came to them, Jesus appeared and continued to appear to them, resurrected, nail, nail holes in his hands and feet and spear hole in his side. For 40 days, he appeared to them over and over again, and they would never be the same, so much so that, like I said earlier, they would spend every day of their lives proclaiming Christ until they died. God's good providence, man, Uncle Bill, I don't know what happened to Uncle Johnny. I was too young to have any kind of spiritual conversation with him, but Uncle Bill, on his deathbed, accepted, he was an atheist, he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior two days before he died. God's good providence. He let me see what the end of the story of lung cancer was for Uncle Bill. In fact, my grandma, who was a faithful Christian, she was the most faithful Christian in my life, said the Lord knows just what he needs to do to bring us to our knees. And that's what happened to Uncle Bill and he came into the faith. Joe and Emily have their precious little son, Joey, waiting for them in the kingdom, along with many of you who have had miscarriages and, and, and lost loved ones. You have them waiting for you in the kingdom. And because of his death, they became open to adopting. And they now have a three-year-old son who would have been born into a broken home. God bless the mother who said, no, I want to pick out a family that will raise this child. And little Asher is part of this very faithful Christian home and just growing by leaps and bounds every day. And, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful picture. Lastly, don't, this is number five, don't lose sight of the God-given gift of feeling. Because a lot of what I'm talking about, you know, you can, it can kind of make you so hard that you stop feeling. You know, you can, you can put an, a crust around you and you stop feeling. And you just find yourself just going through the motions in a very protected format. No, don't ever lose sight of feeling. Don't stop feeling because life is dangerous. I love that line in the Michael Card song. I don't even remember the name of the song. It's been so long and... He's singing it as a duet with another famous female vocalist. I don't remember her name either. But um, in the song it says, I think the song is why. Yeah, Laura's saying yes, it's why. Why did it have to be a friend that chose to betray the Lord? Why did he have to use a kiss? That's not what a kiss is for. And then the female comes in and says, 
Basically, here's why. Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. Only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. I've seen so many people withdraw into isolation. I've seen whole churches withdraw into isolation, kind of like a, the village, for fear of getting hurt, living in fear. Dear friends, please don't do that. You are way better off walking right into the darkness of the situation than becoming isolated and paranoid. Not to mention, when you do that, you lose your witness to others who are hurting and who are without Christ in the world. If you're all hunkered down in a barricade, no feelings, no emotions, no vulnerability, no danger, you're not going to reach anybody. One last little nugget, and I'm done. You guys all know I, gotta, I at least have to quote another rock metal song. It also is from Evanescence, from her new album. The, end of the, uh, the, the album is The Bitter Truth. The song I'm quoting, which I highly recommend that you listen to, is called The End of the Dream. In the song, Amy Lee, who by the way has endured much pain. She's lost a brother and she's lost a sister. She's 39 years old and lost a younger brother and a younger sister. She says this, she says, I saw a bird closing her eyes one last time and I wonder if she dreamed like me. As much as it hurts, ain't it wonderful to feel? So go on and break your wings. Let your heart bleed. I'm not afraid. I push through the pain. I'm on fire. I remember how to breathe again. As much as it hurts, ain't it wonderful to feel? Christians, Jesus, who said to Peter, put your sword in your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Drink that cup and went to Calvary. He's got you. Enjoy the good, embrace the sadness, and love and serve him and one another. Placing your hope in him alone until the end when you will enter into the glory that was prepared for you before the world was. Let's pray. What can we say, Lord, but thank you? What love is this that you would come for us in this way? that you would accomplish everything that needed to be done to take us fallen people and reconcile us back to God, have our sins washed from scarlet red to white as snow, and be recipients of the free gift of eternal life with you in the kingdom. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.